0: The concept of retirement in this country is broken. We work ourselves to death and we miss out on so many of life's precious experiences. And as a certified financial planner and CPA here in Nashville, Tennessee, I'm committed to helping free others from this antiquated mindset using my three-bucket approach to managing money and to find creative ways to live now and retire while you work. Join me as we change the way we think about money and time and which one of these is the true currency. All right, looks like everybody's coming in, so we'll go ahead and get started. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome. It's been a crazy year, to say the least. Um, Hope everybody is healthy, family's good, um, and that you're getting ready for the holidays. I know it's going to probably feel different uh, logistically and maybe emotionally this year, um, but we still have a lot to be thankful for, so let's not lose sight of that. Um, And we're all going to need some rest for sure after this election, Um, which obviously I feel like that's most everyone's focus right now. And if you have to ask what election. Um, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I'm pro- actually, I'm jealous because that means you've uh, been keeping the TV off. Good for you, you're probably a lot more mentally healthy than a lot of us who watch it uh, most days or have to watch it. Um, but anyway, so our goal has really been since COVID broke out earlier this year is to keep you informed uh, and find ways to share our perspective since we can't do the normal in-person seminars that our team loves to do and we've done for the past 20 years. Um, And I'm getting at least five questions a day, I'd say, and they typically go something like this. Um, David, we're nervous about the uh, potential outcome of the election, depending on what party that they're leaning towards. And we wonder if we need to go cash or do we need to go a lot more defensive? We really don't have um, time to come back if we lose everything, that sort of thing. So... We, again, we get that question all the time. The, and the way I translate that is basically, it's fear is high right now, that's no surprise. Volatility is picking back up and I get it. And I've seen this a lot over uh, my 20 years of doing this and hopefully today will help settle some of those nerves and give you at least some things that you can think about as we go into next week and discuss with us. And so also today, I have a good friend, personal friend of mine and another top Raymond James advisor, Tim Freeze, who's also co-hosting today um, he's going to speak here in a second, and we're going to have some time at the very end for Q&A. So if you'll hit that button button at the bottom of your screen, um, we'll do our best to go through all the questions at the end. And as soon as Tim introduces the speakers, uh, he and I will mute and turn our video off. You're welcome for that. And then we'll pop back in as needed or certainly at the end uh, to, to go through the questions. So without further ado, my buddy, Tim Freeze.
1: Thank you, David. Hey, so I like the idea of Renaming the, the talk today, Washington to Wall Street to Main Street, because we're coming to you from small town USA in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. And, um, you know, I don't know about all of you, but we are just tired, right? We're tired of, I mean, frankly, worried about our loved ones. We're tired of COVID and this election. And just like David said, we're hoping to bring in turn today some of that concern into clarity and calm. Um, You know, the media seems to make all of this stuff exponential. And, you know, they seem to be able to take a simple fact and twist it 180 degrees one way or the other and make it sound like whatever they want it to sound like. And that just like David said, we regularly get a chance to talk to experienced, unbiased experts who bring topics to us down to the core so that we can ultimately do a better job serving you. And that's what we're doing today. We're bringing experts from from Putnam. Putnam is a wealth management firm and an investment partner of ours. Um, And they do a really great job of keeping us informed and ahead of the curve on investment, tax, wealth management strategies. And today we're bringing Bill Cass and Chris Gallupo to you. Um, Both of them have 30 years of experience with the industry. Um, Bill's going to kick it off, and he's going to start, and he's he's the director of wealth management programs, and Bill does all the research, develops, and delivers these strategies all across the country. Um, And so, in particular, he's bringing... um, the effects of policy coming out of Washington and how that impacts us. And then Chris is gonna be our investment, is our investment expert also with 30 years of experience. He is a senior investment director uh, for the Global Investment, sorry, Investment Strategies Group. And he's gonna help us understand what may or may not occur depending on which direction this investment or this election goes. So, Bill, let's start with you, take it away.
2: Great, thanks Tim, thanks David. Uh, thanks everybody who are uh, spending, a, taking a few minutes out of your day to uh, spend a few minutes with us hearing about our outlook. As, uh, as Tim said, my name is Bill Cassim with Putnam Investments, we're located uh, in Boston. I'm coming to you from live from uh, my kitchen table, <laughs> like I have been for the past, I don't know how many months now, six months or so. Uh, just south of Boston. That's that's where I live. Normally, I would be traveling a ton, especially this time of year. And we would, um, you know, we might even be doing this in person over a, a lunch meeting or something like that. But uh, given obviously what what we're all going through, uh, we're going to have to do this in a in a virtual setting. And, and happy to stick around and uh, address any questions that you have. So I thought I'd take the next ten minutes or so and talk about some of the key factors that I'm looking at. When it comes to the uh, the election uh, that's coming up uh, in just next week, so we're, we're getting very close. Uh, the polls have uh, tightened up in some areas, have remained the same in other areas. Um, but I, I would say that you know, be careful of what you listen to. There's a lot of noise out there, and uh, and, and there's a lot that can happen in the, in the last few days. So uh, depending on, on what you're looking at, we saw that in 2016. Um, there, there was almost mostly all the polls thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. There was only a couple outliers that uh, that sort of headed another way. And so you just never know what's going to happen, especially this year, is super unpredictable with the amount of absentee and the amount of mail-in ballots, which we've never seen before. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to share my screen. So I want to I share a couple of visuals here. So bear with me here and we'll uh, all right here we go um so yeah i'm not going to go through uh, the, the whole presentation but there's a couple visuals i thought i'd, I'd share to sort of frame the conversation today i want to start off with the senate okay so i think that's where a lot of the action is frankly the senate is going to be a key linchpin so for example if um if the polls play out like that like they look right now okay and a lot can change but the polls play out on the national level uh, and by, and we have a Biden administration, uh, then uh, a president, Joe Biden, would need a Democratic Senate to advance his major policy goals. There's not going to be a Biden tax plan without a Democrat, uh, without the Democrats taking back the Senate. There's not going to be anything, you know, in terms of um, health care spending around the affordable character, anything like that on a scale uh, without a Democratic Senate. So that, that's a key linchpin. And uh, so that's what we're watching right now. The Democrats need a net gain of, let's say if Biden wins, they need to pick up or net three seats in the Senate to make that happen. Okay. Uh, and we'll take a look at where we think they are towards that three seat target uh, right now. Remember, if they get a 50-50 split, a vice president, a uh, Democratic vice president would split any ties in the Senate. Now, there, are, uh, there is legislation you have you need 60 votes to advance legislation in the Senate. However, you can advance pretty major legislation with just a simple majority, like tax legislation. For example, if it's tied to the government's budget, we call that the budget reconciliation process. Or the Democrats could take a very controversial move if they have a simple majority and uh, just repeal the the 60 60 vote filibuster rule. And it would be very controversial. I don't think they're there yet, but it's something that we're we're certainly keeping an eye on. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the races here, and I'll point a few of them out. All right, so um, a lot of of names on this, but let me me just take you through it really uh, at at a very high level. So I would say right now the Democrats are feeling pretty good about picking up two Republican seats. One in Arizona, uh, that's Martha McSally as the incumbent. Uh, Republican, and then in Colorado, Cory Gardner, the incumbent. So uh, I think the Democrats feel feel pretty good about those. Again, caveat, disclaimer, uh, anything could change in the last week or so, right? But let's put two in the win column for the Democrats there. But let's look at Alabama. And Doug Jones, the incumbent Democrat in Alabama, um, we're pretty, you know, the indications are that he's going to lose that seat to Tommy Tuberville, former Auburn football coach, for those of you who are college football fans. So let's put one in the win column for the Republicans there that leaves us with a net one. So where can, if, uh, if there is a Biden administration, where can the Democrats pick up a couple more seats? Uh, at First, I'd look at Susan Collins in Maine. I've been up to Maine several times uh, over the past uh, you know month or two, uh, and that is a hotly contested race. Uh, Sarah Gideon, the challenger, is, has been outpolling her pretty consistently in the state of Maine. She's also outspending her about three to one. And that's a common theme we see at these Senate races. Heck, even Lindsey Graham's getting spent three to one in South Carolina. Now, we think Lindsey Graham's going to be reelected. But there is a lot of money flowing into those uh, key Democratic uh, Senate races. I'd also look at Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Uh, Challenger Cal Cunningham had a little bit of a, uh, let's call it a a scandal. (laughs) You can Google it if you want to know more. Uh, but uh, he's held up, but but the polls have tightened. I would say even the last few days there. Uh, so Tillis is looking maybe a little bit better than he was, and that that's that's really a toss up. Uh, you look at maybe Iowa, uh, you look at maybe uh, maybe Kansas has a couple other areas. So my point being this is that uh, unless it's a huge huge blue wave, if Biden wins the White House and the Democrats take back take back the Senate. I think it's going to be a pretty, you know, narrow margin in the Senate. You know, it's not going to. Be, I, I'd be shocked if it was 55-45 in favor of the Democrats. But let's say it's 51-49 or 52-48 or even 50-50. One of the questions I get asked is, are we going to see some of these progressive policies make their way through Congress? Uh, we hear a lot about this Green New Deal. Okay. Uh, you know, changing the landscape on fossil fuels and fracking and whatnot. Um, I, I would just say this: there's still going to be some centrist Democrats in the Senate that aren't going to sign on for these ultra-left progressive policies. Like a Joe Manchin uh, in West Virginia, he's not—he's going to have trouble selling that type of agenda to his folks in his home state. Let's put it that way. So, um, you just keep that keep that in perspective, because I think people look at it and say, "Oh my God, what's going to happen if?" You know if 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 people for the people that are concerned about more progressive policies that's a, that's a theme sort of i've heard a, a little bit over and over again okay let's talk about the national race I'm, and then i'll share a couple comments on planning and i'll kick it over to my colleague chris on the national race you know what what states are we looking at these are the usual suspects what i did was i took a look at the 2016 election and i just said okay what let me look at the 10 closest races and i'll just look at the top five the like five closest races Trump won four out of those five. This is a major reason he won the election in 2016. Very narrow margins in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida. Uh, so these are, the, these are the key, you know, the, the usual suspects. And there's some other ones we're watching as well. But we're hearing a lot of noise. I think if you're a Republican strategist, you know that Trump is not going to win the popular vote. I mean, that's, that's a, almost a guaranteed certainty. He's not going to win the popular vote. He didn't win it last time. But it's all about the electoral college vote, okay? So how can he cobble together the right states to come up with come up with 270 in terms of the electoral college uh, uh the electoral college, okay? How can he get there? There's a lot of different combinations maybe, but I think Florida has to be in all those combinations probably. So Florida is a key state. I think that's a must win for the Democrats. And then it's about picking up, you know, a couple other combinations of states that's going to tilt the numbers in his way. The one thing that's different this time, remember, is the mail-in ballots. This is going to bring a lot of uncertainty to the table because different states have different rules. So for example, a state like Pennsylvania, Battleground State, will allow ballots, mail-in ballots, to trickle in a few days after the polls close, as long as they're postmarked by election day. Uh, certain states are counting them early, so they're getting a head start. Certain states cannot, by state law, count them until election day, or some in some cases, until the until the, you know, sometime around where the poll is closed. So that means there's gonna be processing. Some states are gonna be better than other states at processing this stuff. So if this election is close, it's, it, we might be in, in for another 2000, the hanging chads of 2000. That was one state and a couple counties. We could see multiple states this time. I'm not alarming anybody, I'm just saying, that we could see some rocky roads, you know, with the market, if you know, we're sort of waiting after the fact on who uh, who won the presidency, and maybe even down to certain Senate races as well. All right, then demographics, I think, are going to play a a big role, and and what I mean, I, I think it's I think a big theme here. I'm what I think it's gonna this election is going to be more about voter turnout in key areas, key support areas, less about undecided voters in the middle. So typically it's a campaign. You got 40% on one side, 40% on the other side, and both parties are sort of fighting over the 20% in the middle. It, 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 it's just not looking that way this year, okay? Less people in the middle means those, those campaigns have to pivot and try to increase turnout where they think it's gonna help them. So for example, this is just 2016 numbers, just one, you can slice and dice the electorate in a lot of different ways. This is just one way, one of our consultants did it, and we sort of lifted it from him. Uh, but, uh, for example, a voting group like White Non-College, 44% of the total votes, it, so it's a, it's a big group, okay, out-favored Trump over Clinton by a pretty wide margin, but the turnout was only 57%. Does that turnout get to 62%, 63% this time around? I don't know. But if it does, that will favor Trump. What about the some of the minority voting groups, the African-American and Black community, okay, turnout last time was 58%, that will that that is going to benefit Biden. Does that 58% go to 65% where it was in 2012? So 2012 uh, to 2016, we saw a huge drop in turnout. So that's what I mean about turnout uh, and and which ones are are, are higher, which ones are lower and which benefits each candidate. And then lastly, approval ratings. Uh, This is just a chart, you know, uh, the blue is the approval rating from incumbent presidents in the beginning of the year. The red is leading right up to the election. And what's happened between that time. So what jumps off the page at me is Carter in 80, Bush in 92, huge drop in approval rating. Uh, and obviously they weren't reelected. Uh, Trump has been trending about 44, 44, 45 percent right now. He was at 42 percent in the beginning of the year. Um, he'd probably, his, his folks would probably want him to get to 46, 47 percent, 48 percent. Uh, Bush in, two, in 2004 dropped, but he settled at around 48%, which was enough to get the job done. And um, I, I, I don't think 44% approval rating gets the job done. Obviously, there's a margin of error in there as well. So, the, so we're watching that. And then I'm going to kick it over to Chris, but just three high-level thoughts. This is, this is an opportunity to have a conversation after the fact with your financial wealth advisors, right? So a couple of things, a couple of things. I'd be looking at raw strategies and it's not for everybody, okay, but raw strategies that can provide tax-free income in retirement, uh, because we do think taxes are going to go up, okay? You have a couple of things. You have a lot of debt because of COVID, $3 trillion added. That's the most we've ever seen in one fiscal year at the federal government level, okay, $3 trillion. And then you have the threat of a potential Biden tax plan, albeit, albeit the way he has it sort of positioned right now, mainly affecting those at the highest, highest uh, uh, tax bracket. But still, higher taxes in the future, how can you hedge for that risk? Talk, you know, at least explore, it's not for everybody, but if you can diversify yourself tax-wise, then that might be a benefit down, you know, long-term. Review beneficiary designations. We had the SECURE Act, which makes your, when you leave IRA money, for example, to the next generation, to the kids, they're gonna have to take it out quicker. The government's going to force them to take it out quicker than they were than they had to before the Secure Act. That's going to lead to, in some cases, a higher tax bill. We want to review beneficiary designations to look at just does it make sense to, you know, leave IRA assets to certain heirs and and leave other assets to my, for example, heirs that are going to be in a high tax bracket. And then estate and gift tax strategies. uh, Very favorable environment right now. That could change uh, if I have significant net worth. Uh, should I be looking to gift or transfer wealth out of my estate into other family members or do charitable giving, uh, something that, again, it's just worth an exploratory conversation, a lot of moving parts there, but just something at a high level to, to be thinking about. So, again, I, I, I want to leave it there. I want to be respectful time. Um, I'm going to kick it over, Chris, to you to talk about what you're thinking about from, my, uh, from an investment perspective.
3: Sounds good, Bill. Great job. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And as Bill said, I am also in my kitchen on the seacoast of New Hampshire here, uh, where it's about 38 degrees and raining outside. So uh, I'm really going to cover four areas here, just uh, with some cliff notes. We're going to talk about the economy, the stock market and the bond market. And then I'm going to talk about what we see um, in terms of risks in the near or intermediate term, and also what we see in terms of opportunities. And that's the spot where I'll weave in some comments about, about the election. So let's take it from a high level in the economy here in the United States and around the world. So you know, we have a, a textbook definition of a recession here for this year uh, with negative GDP in the first two quarters of the year, the economy re-accelerated significantly here in, uh, in the third quarter. And now we're into the fourth quarter and the economy still looks to be moving ahead. So. I think the most common question that I have gotten all year from advisors and from their clients is something along the lines of, you know, Chris, can you talk about how it's possible or makes any sense that the stock market can go up when it feels like the economy is falling through the floor and you know, 40 million people have lost their jobs, et cetera? And when you look back at history, you find that, that uh, what, what has happened here this year is exactly what happens every time you know, whatever the case for getting or the cause for getting into a recessionary uh, environment, the stock market always looks forward and the stock market always begins to move ahead well before the end of a recession. In fact, it starts to rally about four months ahead of any recession. And so what has happened here is pretty normal. Um, And if you believe that the history is repeating and we do, then the recession probably was over in July or August. Which makes sense. And we can see that in the high frequency economic data as well. So at some point, we'll get the official end to the recession, which essentially is useless. It doesn't help us. But the message that the stock market has been sending is one that we listen to very, very closely. The stock market is usually right. And the stock market, or the economic data rather, just by its definition, is looking in the rearview mirror, right? That's already happened. Well, managing portfolios, I can't look through the rearview mirror. I need to look through the windshield. And so I listened carefully to what the stock market is saying. And part of the message has been inc- incredible resiliency, right? I mean, the stock market always bottoms on bad news. So if you think back to March, we were starting to get shut down. The, the caseloads were going through the roof. We watched uh, the New York governor on TV every day, talk about hospitalizations, so on and so forth. And then, uh, you know, as, as I think as Tim talked about earlier, it gets sensationalized in the media and people get terrified, right? So. Stock market bottom-down bad news again, it always does that. No one walks into our trading room and rings a bell and says, Chris, I think it's time to buy this stock here. That doesn't happen, right? So um, I think investors forget that when stock prices come down, the forward rate of return gets better. And it's the only business in the world really where when stock prices come down, people get nervous. And they think, geez, maybe I shouldn't buy it here because I don't want to buy it when it's going up. That's not the right, <laughs> that's not the right way to think. Uh, So your outcome improves when valuation comes down. Anyway, we're we're on the path here into reacceleration. We would expect uh, the US economy to post nominal GDP in 2021 of somewhere around four or 5%. That's a pretty good number. My guess is the reasons, one of the reasons the stock market has been so strong is because um, the market's knowledge suggests that the economy is probably stronger than people think. Uh, And as a result, earnings, corporate earnings will probably be stronger than people think. And ultimately, That is what matters. What matters is the pace of economic growth and earnings growth over time. Everything else that people are concerned about, everything else that they're talking about on TV is great to talk about at the barbecue or the cocktail party. But as I'll show you later, uh, with data, it's immaterial. What matters is the economy and earnings. So we also think that the recovery here in the United States will be the strongest and most durable in the world. And so we like the stock market in the United States, like the bond market in the United States, better than we do Europe, let's say. Um, I'm asked a lot about inflation. So I just want to touch on that here before we move along. And so people ask, advisors and clients ask, well, with all this money printing, isn't this going to uh, create inflation? Now, there's a couple components to that. First of all, it didn't in 08 and 09, right? We know that uh, the magnitude here is four or five times what it was in 08 and 09. It was, you know, we needed, we certainly needed. I think the Fed learned from their, you know, not being able to get things done in fast enough time for us in 08 and 09. So Much quicker this time. Um, Just because there's a lot of money sloshing around doesn't mean there'll be inflation, right? Two things impact that uh, present day. Number one, the unemployment rate is still about 8% down from its highs of 15%. That's probably too high, too many people out of jobs to create enough income and drive prices higher where demand outstrips supply. That's unlikely. And the savings rate is number two. Got up to about 20% uh, in the summertime. That's as high as I've ever seen in my 30 years in the investment business. It's backed off now to the mid teens, still very high. So until those things change significantly, we're not that worried about it. I think you are seeing the impact though, in asset prices, mostly housing, right? So the housing market has been on fire, combination of mostly super low interest rates and affordability. So I think that's one place where you're seeing uh, the money slosh around a little bit and you could, you could also make the argument about the stock market too, uh, and, and I would concur with that. Uh, so that's it on the economy. I think the the, the foundation here is pretty good. We've got low, low cost of capital, I mean, low interest rates, Earnings in the third quarter, 85% of companies that reported had reported better than expected earnings, uh, and 82% have reported better than expected sales. So I think, you know, we're on pretty good footing going forward. I think in the immediate term here, expect some volatility uh, as we we move in um, and get closer to the election. It's what we're seeing today. It's very normal. All right, let's talk about the stock market. So interesting things happen when the country goes into a recession and then begins to exit the recession. And I want to talk about two of them. And the most common question that I get from uh, financial advisors is, in their clients sometimes is, should we just own technology stocks, right? And of course they're asking me that because tech tech stocks in general are up big for the year. It's very normal for those questions to come along. And in reality, when the economy is growing slowly or even when the economy is decelerating, growth stocks do very well. So this is my Apple iPhone and Apple's business is fine because it's not really sensitive to GDP. And so growth companies do very well when the economy is growing slowly because Apple can still raise prices, sell phones, increase margins and grow their earnings, right? Well, there are a lot of companies that can't do that that are very sensitive to the uh, growth rate in the economy. And those are generally referred to as either cyclical companies or value companies. And so let's talk a little bit about that. We know that into the recession, growth will outperform value because those companies can grow as the economy is shrinking. Well, what happens when the economy starts to do this? It starts to improve. It starts to reaccelerate. It's doing that now. Well, when that happens, companies that are sensitive to the economy tend to have the biggest jump in earnings power. So the biggest growth in earnings going forward probably won't be from Apple, but it probably will be uh, from railroads and truckers, companies like Caterpillar. Uh, we've seen it already in the retailers, at Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, Target, and eventually we'll see it in the big banks too. That's probably where the puck is going. And we know from just, from me doing research, we know that for five years after a recession ends, that the more cyclical parts of the economy, the value parts of the stock market, outperform the growth parts. And so that's one thing to think about. I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting too is small cap stocks uh, have lagged here for a number of years. Same phenomena occurs into the recession, large cap stocks do really well uh, at the bottom of a recession as we begin to exit small cap stocks begin to act a lot better and there are very good reasons for that right those comp- smaller companies tend to have more debt on their balance sheet they might not have as consistent earnings power um, very sensitive to the economy in most cases so their revenue and earnings can move around a lot um, and with a lot of debt they could go out of business so generally investors will wait until we're sure that the economy is going to move forward and remember <clears throat> the backdrop is very good here we've got a very similar fed who has told us many times we're gonna keep interest rates lower for longer. So I think it's a couple of things to think about. Uh, if you're interested in what we like, uh, when we were coming into 2020, the areas that we liked were technology, healthcare, and consumer discretionary companies. We still like those three areas. And in the last three or four months, we're much more constructive on the industrial uh, sectors, which is a direct play on the fact that the economy is reaccelerating, and we expect it to continue to reaccelerate. All right, so that's all for the stock market. I would expect more volatility here, more chop as we move closer to uh, November third. What's happening today is nothing to be nothing to be worried about. Remember that from the March low, the S and P five hundred is up over sixty percent, sixty percent almost in a straight line. So it's probably time to take a break anyway. In the bond market, uh, I think this is probably the biggest challenge for advisors, the biggest challenge for savers, right? So for many of you. you think about why we use fixed income in portfolios. For two, we use it for two specific reasons. One, diversification. So when you have periods like March, when the stock market corrects, the bond part of your portfolio, the prices there are probably going up while stock prices are going down. That's diversification. The second part is for yield or income. Now this is a challenge, and I think it's going to be a challenge for the next couple of years. And so my message to advisors generally is this: that We're probably in a lower, you know, much lower interest rate regime than we thought for a longer period of time. And as a result, we probably can't, we shouldn't expect the same income component from the fixed income side of the portfolio, right? David and Tim and I have talked about this This is nothing new, but I think for savers, it's it's a difficult thing because then you have to try and navigate, you know, there there are ways around that, but generally they involve buying equities or some other play on the stock market, which gets you more exposure to a riskier asset. I think it's difficult. Uh, relief may be coming. Though our best guess for 2021 is that U.S. 10-year bond yields begin to or continue to move north. They're about 80 basis points now. Our best guess is north of 1%, maybe as high as 1.50, uh, 1.50%. That will be a result of the economy strengthening. So we'll see if that happens or not. Uh, let's talk about risks and opportunities. So every quarter, I ask my colleagues what keeps you know what keeps them up at night. And when you're managing billions of dollars, almost everything keeps you up at night. Uh, And it took me 30 years to realize that some things I can't control. Here's what keeps us up at night right now. Number one, pace of economic growth. That's the thing that we're most concerned with, which leads to concern number two, which is the pace of earnings growth, right? We know over time that as the economy grows, generally speaking, that earnings will grow. That's what drives the stock market. No, it's not in the top five, the election. We're not worried about the election at all. We think Biden's. You know, we know we know what where they both stand now. You could argue that Trump's policies are more favorable economically. Certainly, corporate CEOs will tell you that lower tax rates, uh, you know, deregulation, so on and so forth, is bullish. Goes the other way with Biden. But Biden's pretty much down the middle of the road. And as Bill Cass said earlier, it's unclear if he can get all all of his you know tax plans and whatnot passed. But we will not make any significant changes in portfolios, regardless of who wins. And I think it's an interesting data point, and I share it with you because I know from talking to financial advisors every day this is the number one concern of the of the client base. But I, so I want to share with you just some interesting data points. Number one, in the three sorry in the three months leading up to every presidential election in the last 100 years, so August 3rd to November 3rd, if the stock market is up. In that window, the incumbent has won 85% of the time. So right now the stock market's up. uh, Going into today was up about 7%. It's probably up 5% now. If it's up on November 3rd, 85% chance to get reelected. I think the biggest hurdle that uh, President Trump has is that in the election year, if there's been a recession, we had that, or a 20% correction in stock prices, we had that, Then the incumbent has never won. And that's happened six times in U.S. history. And it's either or, this year we had both. So I think that's a big hurdle for him, which leads me to point number three. Going back to 1901, so 119 years of data, did you know that equity returns under a Democratic president average about 8% a year? Under a Republican president, equity returns average about 3.8 3.8 percent a year, and so if Biden wins, it's not a death sentence. Right? As I mentioned, we won't make any changes anyway. We're not that worried about it. We think the economy's on sound footing, fiscal and monetary policies in place. The economy's going to pull out of this. The world doesn't end that often, right? Regardless of what you hear on TV, doesn't end that often. Um, so. The other thing that uh, advisors have asked me a lot about is, well, he's going to raise Biden will raise taxes, and Billy talked about this. He might not be able to get all that done. And we really the, the policies now, as we can see, are pretty vague, so we don't know. But let's, let's, just, go, let's just go with that. Um, I spent a couple of days looking at U.S. tax code history back 100 years, and you know, here's what I found. I, what I wanted to know was, is there any relationship between marginal tax rates and effective tax rates at the corporate level and at the individual level? as well as the capital gains rate. I wanted to know if there was any explanatory power relative to the stock market, meaning if they raise taxes, does the stock market get hit? If they lower taxes, does it rally? Is there any relationship there? There's zero relationship over a hundred years. There's zero correlation between any tax rate. You pick the tax rate, personal, corporate, marginal, effective, zero. And I, I published a paper on that a few weeks ago. So if that's your concern, Don't worry too much about that. History says in in some of the highest tax brackets we've ever seen from 1932 to 1980, right, if the marginal bracket is here for individuals, the lowest was 70%. The highest was 90%. 50 years. The S&P was up 1,000% in the same time period. So I don't think that's much to worry about. Um, so I hope you can, you can take some of the data and sleep a little better at night. We'll be a little volatile going into this, maybe a little volatile coming out of it if it's contested. I can tell you that we're ready for that. We will use the weakness to be a buyer. Uh, on the opportunity side, I just, I'll finish with this. A couple of interesting things we think I hit on value stocks, I hit on small cap stocks. The other thing I'd just like to hit on is uh, the potential opportunity in emerging market equities, um, which have underperformed for about 10 or 12 years. We think that part of the world will benefit from the global recovery. Uh, and we think that's underway. So, Tim, David, I will hit the pause button there. Happy to take any questions and I'll put myself on mute.
0: Hey, great, thanks a lot. Um, I only see one question here and I know Tim had another client question. I'll read this one and then uh, feel free if you're still watching to uh, type a question in at the bottom. All right, so this question, uh, speaking generally, the Republican party uses the economy as one of their biggest platforms for election year after year. And it would seem that common knowledge says that a Republican administration is better for the economy. However, when I look at the strength of the dollar, GDP growth, stock market returns, it would seem as though a Democratic administration is better for the economy. Am I missing something here, or is common knowledge, or is it common knowledge and Republican rhetoric misleading? You kind of answered that a minute ago, uh, Chris. But go ahead yeah. if you want to expand.
3: No, I think I think that I think that's in line. And, but that surprises a lot of people. You know, I think the one thing we forget about is that even though generally the platform for uh, Democrats is to raise taxes, there's also a tremendous amount of spending, government spending, whether it's the federal level or the state level, which has you know, two real effects. Uh, most importantly, getting people to work or getting people back to work, right? As we exit this recession uh, and it's slight upward bias on wages, which you know, those, that's very good for the economy. Our the US economy is two thirds driven by all of us. By consumer spending, and so you know, I think the point's well made. I hit it earlier, but that's that's generally true.
0: And
3: okay. Tim, did you
1: have a question? Yeah, Chris, Bill, this is really great stuff. And um, great. And I do, and I do think our, our clients tend to get tired of the, the message coming from David and I, and so it's really nice to get it directly from you guys, unfiltered. Um, and and one of the questions I had a a, a client. Um, who's, you know, a senior client who's, you know, worried about what we should be doing in ad- advance of, you know, this election. Should it go one way or the other? Are there things that we're doing to protect against a market, you know, downturn or a market crash? Um, and, and, and Chris, you were talking a little bit about defense, you know, and asset allocation, which we, you know, obviously do a ton of, and everybody's situation is different. Um, but where do we go if if we can't go to bonds for defense um, because of interest rates being so low in the anticipation of them sort of grinding higher over the next few years? Where do we where do we go for for defense to protect against you know a big market loss? It's
3: it, it's a very difficult question. Now the first thing I would say, Tim, is we already had the cathartic sell off. That was March, thirty five percent in four weeks right? That's pain. That's highly unlikely to repeat, highly unlikely. Um, the second part of your question is a very tough question to answer. So there, there, are, there are different things that you can do. So you can keep it in a money market fund, as, for instance, right, which is not going to get you anything. In fact, on an inflation-adjusted basis, you're losing. You could take a couple steps out from that and use short-duration uh, bond portfolios that can get you a little more yield and higher right you, you're winning there on a real real rate of return and the other thing you can do in uh, fixed income anyway is use corporate credit right so you're getting away from duration risk which we're you know we're bearish on duration we think rates are biased up so if you want to get into corporate credit you can the issue there is that from the lows in march lows in the stock market widens credit spreads in march those spreads have compressed quite a bit and so you know, a, couple, a, a few weeks of down 2% in equities would cause credit spreads to widen and create some opportunity. So if we get some weakness here, uh, we'll probably put money to work here in Boston in, in corporate credit. But as of right now, it's, it's very difficult. You can wade further into convertible bonds, which is essentially a backdoor way to play the stock market, give you most of the upside and limit the downside. But remember, you're still taking equity beta right, into the portfolio, And you need to be mindful, I know you guys are, but some advisors aren't, you need to be mindful of that. Preferred stocks, high dividends, et cetera, you're still getting more equity beta. So I would wait for some weakness. I think maybe give you a chance to put money to work in corporate credit. And in the meantime, I'd sit there with not a lot of duration exposure and use the cash or ultra short, you know, one step away from cash proxies. I mean, if you're really a long-term investor, are you gonna buy US 10-year bonds with a with yield of spot 75, spot eight? You are going to lose money 10, 15 years out. No question about that. So it's tough.
0: Yeah. All right, thanks. Um, another question. Um, for those who have significant cash on hand for whatever reason, and knowing that market timing is difficult, if not impossible, with the coming volatility in the market, what strategy would you employ for putting this cash into the market before the end of 2020? I'll just kind of what we tell clients in that situation, and I certainly want to hear uh, you guys' perspective, is we tend to say like if we're going during periods like now, um, a lot of clients that they have a big chunk of cash, depending on how much, they don't want to dump it in the market right now, even though historically your best odds of investing typically are today, only from the standpoint that three out of four days or three out of four years, the market's up, yada, yada, you know, that's bill. Um, but in times like now, I would say, let's pick, you know, a time frame, call it three months, four months, whatever, and just commit to on the first or the 15th of every month, dollar cost average. And then what our team will do is, if we see, again, not market timing, but if we see a day or a week where the market falls five, six, 7%, something that's more of an anomaly, we may um, expedite the next month's tranche and go ahead and invest it today. So or at least we have some sort of strategy that's each month and then an exception if there's a big drop. Um, Chris, what would you say to that or Tim? I, or Bill? I
3: agree 100%. You know, so we address it the same way. So we're prepared, we're prepared for that should that happen here. We will take days like today down 2%. You know, Every portfolio manager has a whiteboard in their office and on that whiteboard are the names, the stocks that we either own and wanna to add to or names that we don't own that we wanna buy. You and Tim go through the exact same process. It might be a fund or an SMA, but we have target prices for entry. And as they approach those target prices, we are active. We don't need to think about it. We've already done the research, right? But we will pick away when stocks get to attractive levels. Now, the diff- the diff- the most difficult part of that is if you get a down five, down seven, down 10% take in a week is you're I'm not saying you guys, but the, the most common reaction is, whoa, may- maybe something else is going on here. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should don't rethink it. You've already done the work, you're already prepared. It's like in March for people who are prepared, that was a great time stepping into the chaos is the right thing to do. So I think um, Dave, you're right on the money. That's, I wouldn't change a thing.
1: Excellent. Yeah, David, we're doing the exact same strategy with, with cash on the sidelines. Um, and one, there's a couple of questions in queue right now that are, are somewhat related. Um, and and one is regarding the Green New Deal, um, and and the other is should should the Democrats take control of the House and the Senate and 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 the White House, um, and then they go and pack the courts and take over the ju- judiciary branch as well somehow. You know, I mean, I know this is this is a that case scenario, but um, as as the U.S. sort of walks down this this new path. Um, is there something, you know, is that a concern from a, from a GDP, from an economic, from a stock market standpoint?
3: Um, not really. I mean, the, the, the Green New Deal sort of stuff, we saw elements of this with uh, Obama, um, President Obama. And I think back when I was, uh, at the time, I was probably managing about four and a half five billion, And I thought, okay, here we go, wind, power, solar, should are, are gonna you know have strong government tailwinds here and natural gas coal that sort of thing gonna there'll be headwinds there and you know maybe a little bit the, the fact of the matter is the world is still powered by fossil fuel right this this isn't going to turn overnight if because they want to get that is not going to happen not going to happen we don't have the infrastructure in place in place for that over 30 or 50 years probably definitely happens but and the same thing's true with. Um, with the infrastructure bill, that gets a lot of play too, right? And both sides, it's kind of a bipartisan support for infrastructure. And Billy can talk about this, but let's say a one trillion dollar infrastructure bill gets passed, regardless of who's president. Don't automatically assume that that's an investable an investable event, right? So, if you look at the companies that will benefit from that, there are very very few public companies that are going to be category killers for that, right? Deer, CAT. Vocal Materials, Mark Marietta, some of the material, those stocks are already up big. Stock market already knows about that. So by the time that deal gets signed, the stocks have already doubled and you've missed it. So, you know, I've learned the hard way not to think and worry too much like LED lighting, right, is another great one and all and cash for clunkers and all that. It's very hard to capitalize on that, on that sort of stuff and make money. Um, it could have impacts in terms of jobs, right? So if you think about uh, CNBC did a good piece this morning on natural, the natural gas industry in Pennsylvania, right, which is Bill talked about earlier is a swing state and the right. potential job losses there if they shut down coal and that sort of thing. I think that could be real and that could have an impact on the economy a little bit. Yeah.
0: Okay.
2: It, it, Tim, I might, I might jump in there just for, with a quick comment because some of these, I, I hear that a lot. What about these sort of progressive, more socialist-leading policies? And, and one thing I always have to um, remind clients is that there's a governor to that, something that keeps that a little bit in check and it's called elections. So don't think that the that, uh, politicians are already, they're already looking at 2022 and they're already looking at, okay, what uh, we could see a wide swing the other way in Congress. So I think if, if you do get a blue sweep, I think pol- the democratic leaders in there and I'm not talking about the ones that make maybe more noise that are on the fringes, but the, the leadership knows that, geez, at some point there's a tipping point. And if we go too far, if we miscalculate 2022 is going to be ugly for us. Now, whether or not they, you know, however, they um, deal with that tipping point, it remains to be seen, but don't think that they're already looking at that they'll get pressure. All those senators that are up for, election in 2022, we'll be talking, you know, to whoever the, the Senate majority leader in the case of a blue sweep a Chuck Schumer, for example, they will be having conversations with him saying, hey, if we go too far, I'm, you know, that is not going to be good for me in 2022. So just a just a kind of a thought, keep in the back of your mind.
0: Great. I see, uh, I see two more questions, uh, maybe three, but one you just answered, it was about Um, being on a potential fast track to socialism. So I think you just answered that. Um, The other one, I have looked at the current proposed stimulus, two trillion spending bill, and I fail to see any spending that will significantly increase uh, productivity or GDP. If it increases consumer spending only, how does that not increase inflation without a commensurate productivity in an increasingly aging population?
3: Well, um, if you look at third quarter GDP, which is going to be up north of 30%, probably 35%. That is a direct result of stimulus, direct result. So it we'll, we will have a positive impact on the economy. Um, the, I go back to what I said earlier about, about the money. Remember, the printing of money is one thing. It's the velocity of the money that really matters. It's, it's, too, it's a lot of dollars chasing few goods, right? It's simple, simple supply demand. And so I think that's part of the issue. That's the, it's a good point, though, because I think that's part of the issue of why this is being held up. The Democrats want, you know, 2 trillion or whatever the number is, and the Republicans are saying, we just don't need that much, right? There's a lot of what they pass in the first tranche that is, hasn't been used, as, a, for, as a, for instance. So I think what's likely to happen here is something gets done, and this is more Bill's area than mine, but if something gets done, you know, the, the stock market will move ahead, the economy will continue to move ahead. I think three to five years out from today, as the economy really should be in escape velocity mode, hopefully, then you could get some inflation pressure, but I'd offer you this too. Last point: If you look at ten-year break evens, which is the bond market assessment of where inflation is from today out ten years, you know what it is: one point seven zero percent. No real inflation.
0: Tim, you want um, yeah, to? questions?
1: See, I see. We have we have. I think uh, probably another um, another question from the con- from a conservative client, um, and that is. You know, if the Democrats make, you know, if they have the, the blue sweep and they have the ability to make Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia states, they'll have more, you know, they'll have the Senate with four more Democratic senators and conservatives will not be in control again. This mitigates our elections.
2: Well, I, I think, Tim, that, that's, that's a good point. I think, though, I go back to uh, the, calculate, the calculated risk of taking that step. And what, what, how does that manifest itself on the other side? Where, where do people – what's the tipping point where people say, all right, I'm done. I, you know, Next election, I'm, I, you know, I'm supporting the other side because I, I just think that that's some um, – they might see that as gamesmanship per a sec. So, so it is a calculation. It's a calculated risk. Does it make sense? It remains to be seen. But I think it would still have an effect in other states – Or or even Senate races in other states going from, you know, especially those that are purplish to light blue to light red, for example. So I do think elections will, I think that is part of the calculation.
0: I don't know, Tim, I don't see any other questions. I was thinking we could go ahead and close and then we'll have a replay of this available if you missed it or if you want to watch it again. Um, Tim, did you have any more questions? You want me to go ahead and proceed with the closing? Um,
3: well,
1: just just one thing, because this is okay. something that comes up in our office quite a bit. And, you know, one is is this recession happened and it was man-made, you know, essentially. we You know, the, the lockdown was forced, the slowdown in the economy was forced. And so it's kind of a, is it different this time? You know, we've heard this, through through my 25 years in the business, is it different this time? Um, and so, and and maybe even to piggyback on that, one of the things that we tend to try and focus on is these long-term secular bear and bull markets that we seem to be driving through through our hundred years of history, that sort of overwhelm the cyclical nature of our economy. And and so I thought it might be a good way to end on some positive news and some positive secular trends that are driving the long-term markets and not this short-term volatility and uncertainty that we're in right now.
3: Yeah, I I would say, Tim, that on uh, March 24th, 2020 was day one of a new secular bull market. And 99% of the advisors I speak with don't believe that. I'll tell you why we do. Um, there were things that happened, the inter- internal internal data readings that occur within the stock market. Um, very simple things like the number of stocks up in a given day relative to the number of stocks down. The amount of volume into the up stocks versus the volume into the down stocks. We're really talking about just market breadth here. Um, there were readings that happened in March and April that you very, very, very rarely see in history. First quarter of ni- uh, 2009. Um, 1992, 1975, 1980, um, and one other time in the 60s, what comes to mind. Uh, Those were all the beginnings of major secular bull markets. We're probably in the first inning of a new one now. Same exact readings.
0: Great. Um,
1: Okay, thank you.
0: And I'll say that, I mean, we're going to be, our goal for Tim and I as advisors is we're going to be meeting with each of you at our next review meetings to go over some of these strategies that Bill talked about at the beginning, you know, the Roth conversions, the beneficiary designations, looking at your estate documents, some of those things, checking your cash positions, emergency funds, all of that. Um, so just keep that in mind. The planning, we always lead with the planning and um, we'll, you know we're, our goal is to continue to, to stay informed, speaking to experts like Chris and Bill and others offline. That's what Tim and I do with a lot of our Um, time and also making tweaks to portfolios we don't have to market time but there are certain tweaks that we make um, that are strategic and come off a lot of research from other investment houses and speaking with other top advisors comparing notes um so just know that if you watch this webinar hoping that we'll be able to predict who was going to win the um election next week sorry to disappoint but um as tim said at the beginning we, we don't know so um that being said, Tim, anything else you want to add, and then we'll uh, go ahead and get this thing up and recorded.
1: Sounds good. No, Chris, Bill, thank you guys very much. It's great to get your perspective and um, and to be able to bring it directly to our clients. It's very
0: beneficial. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Sure. That was great. Sure. Take care of everybody. Yeah. Thanks for having okay. us. All right, everybody. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening today to Retire While You Work. I'm David Adams and hope you'll continue to listen as we discuss creative ways to manage your time and money. And now some friendly disclaimers to make my compliance department at Raymond James happy. Here we go. Any opinions are those of myself, David Adams, and not necessarily those of Raymond James. Expressions of opinion are as of this date and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in these podcasts do not purport to be a complete description of the securities markets or developments referred to in this material. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but we do not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Every investor situation is unique, and you should consider your investment goals, risk tolerance, and time horizon before making any investment. Prior to making an investment decision, please consult with your financial advisor about your individual situation. Any hypothetical examples are for illustration purposes only. Actual investor results will vary. Raymond James does not provide legal or tax services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional.
3: (sighs) There you go.